Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Iron deficiency is an often under-recognized source of reduced performance and fatigue, particularly in female athletes. Endurance athletes seem to experience this more commonly, but we certainly do see other athletes who may have these struggles as well. But are we diagnosing and treating it properly? I've heard several speakers on this topic over the last five years, and it's revolutionized my approach in thinking about this topic. Today, we'll hopefully expand your knowledge and perhaps provide you a different way of thinking of caring for your athletes who are iron deficient. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Angela Wyand. Dr. Wyand attended medical school at the University of Michigan and completed her pediatrics residency at the University of Washington Seattle Children's Hospital. She then returned to the University of Michigan for Pediatric Hematology and Oncology Fellowship and subsequently stayed on as faculty. Clinically, she is interested in von Willebrand disease, iron deficiency, and young women and girls with bleeding or clotting disorders. She is the co-director of a combined hematology-gynecology program dedicated to the care of adolescents with disorders of hemostasis. Her research interests are in hematology reference ranges, women and girls with bleeding disorders, hormone-provoked thrombosis, and von Willebrand disease. In addition to her interest in hemostasis, she is an active user of social media, specifically Twitter, and I encourage you to follow her for medical education, advocacy, and collaboration. Plus, she also started a social media campaign with Dr. Tatiana Prowell called Healthcare Workers versus Hunger in 2020, and in the two years, has raised nearly $800,000 for local food banks. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I have several reasons for having this episode of this podcast. It's a common problem, obviously. I have a daughter who dealt with this her freshman year in cross country. And I've learned from many sports nutritionists, actually, through some tutorials, including one of yours. Perhaps how most are taught to recommend treating these problems goes counter to what actually is going on in the body. And I think hopefully this will, like I said, open the eyes of some people as far as how we really should be looking at iron deficiency, iron deficiency anemia, maybe change our approach a little bit so we can really treat these patients better. Probably a good place to start just clarifying the difference for our listeners between iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. Sure. This, as you mentioned, is kind of an interest of mine in terms of hematology reference ranges. And I think a lot of the reference ranges that we use are probably not optimal, but in general, you know, iron is very important for erythropoiesis or making red blood cells. And when you're severely deficient in iron, your hemoglobin suffers. And so in that case, you become anemic, but there's a lot more being recognized even now that having iron deficiency, even without anemia, is associated with a lot of symptoms and problems. And so it's just as important, I think, to treat iron deficiency without anemia. But I think historically, a lot of times when people see a normal hemoglobin, even if your iron was low, they're like, you know, they say, well, you're not anemic. So, you know, this shouldn't be causing issues. But I think we have enough studies now to show that it really does. What are some of the common signs and symptoms that we may have when patients present to our office with iron deficiency? Unfortunately, you know, I think what people forget when they are so focused on the anemia is iron is actually involved in like, I think over 180 different biochemical reactions. And so really it can cause a huge range of side effects if you are iron deficient from, you know, fatigue, especially if you're anemic, but even if you're not, patients sometimes can complain of hair loss, cold hands and feet. A lot of people have sleep issues when their iron is low, most commonly restless legs. 
fatigue and muscle aches, just kind of every different body system, you know, can be affected, even things, you know, like I said, hair loss, but nail changes, and it kind of depends on the severity of the deficiency. But then there's the ones that you typically like in medical school of, you know, eating non nutritive substances like ice or (laughs) dirt, Mm -hmm. and you know, really strange things that I think ice people don't necessarily recognize as being super abnormal, right? Like if you like to chew on ice, that doesn't seem super weird. Whereas if you're like craving dirt, I think people (laughs) think that's a little more odd and may may recognize that that's probably not normal. Yeah, just a little bit, uh, that dirt kind of craving. I I don't know that I'd be, uh, uh, that that would raise some red flags for me if someone come in. Yeah, exactly. I just have this strange craving for dirt lately. Right, Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's a good pearl. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, and in runners, when I, because I take care of lots of runners, I think the two biggest common complaints that I see when runners come in with this is heavy legs. That's a big common thing that they tell us is that my legs just feel super heavy or very fatigued, like kind of you describe, but really just focusing on their lower legs. And then the other thing that obviously is the big concern always is decreased performance. So Absolutely. they come in and that they're usually the biggest complaint is my times keep getting worse, even though I'm training harder and it just doesn't seem like I can make any gains. And so when I hear those two things, if I have a runner come in, those are definitely red flags for me as far as thinking of those in addition to obviously all the other things that you kind of described as well. Absolutely. Do you have any preferred lab studies that you get if you have someone suspected for iron deficiency? My my typical routine is just a CBC and I get a ferritin. I don't do the whole big iron studies and maybe that's wrong for me as kind of the, the simple sports medicine doc and you're the, the hematologist here. I'd love your take on what you like to do and, and do you really feel like other further iron studies are necessary? Yeah, I think it depends largely on the patient, but I think, you know, you're exactly right in terms of, you know, where to begin. So a CBC, I think, again, historically, most people, you know, a lot of times would just stop at the CBC, which I think is why, unfortunately, iron deficiency without anemia is really under-recognized and under-treated. So I think the ferritin is definitely key. Ferritin is really specific for iron deficiency if it's low, but it's not so great in terms of the fact that it's an acute phase reactant, depending on the patient. Like if you have somebody who comes in and they're a runner and they're having heavy legs and their times are not what they should be, but maybe their hemoglobin is normal um, and their ferritin is normal, but maybe even they have some history that suggests that you know, you're pretty convinced this is iron deficiency, then I usually will send more specialized tests like soluble transferrin receptor which a lot of labs have to send out, but is a good lab to kind of differentiate if you have like ongoing inflammation that is increasing your ferritin for some reason. The soluble transferrin receptor is not affected by that and so it can help you differentiate that because I think that's another place where we probably miss some iron deficiency is just in patients who have other reasons for inflammation and even depending on the sport you're doing and how intensively you're training and the proximity to training with the ferritin, that can be a little bit more difficult to interpret. When you're looking at a ferritin level, and we're talking about kind of reference ranges that you mentioned that that's kind of an area of interest of you of lab, those types of things, you can get a ferritin level and you can be in the normal range for your lab. But in reality, for an athlete, that's too low for what you're seeing. And so what, what would you typically be concerned about yourself for a ferritin level? Yeah. So this is totally the soapbox that my fellows like always know that I get on is that <laughs> these reference ranges just are complete garbage. And I love that people outside of hematology are thinking about this because I think when you get a lab back, so many of us just like look at the flag of like normal or abnormal. And if it's like not flagged as abnormal, you're like, okay, moving on, right? Like that's not what's going on here. But like our reference lab goes down to a spiritual of six mm. for women. 
which is definitely not okay. So I think for like adolescents and up, really your ferritin at minimum should be 30. And a lot of people would say even like 50 or above. Clearly six, six is way too low. Um, I think even now with like kind of bigger organizations, they're kind of coming around to higher levels. Although I think still like the WHO, I want to say is like 15 or 25. So I think still a little bit lower than, than optimal, but at least they're getting closer. You know, I think a good discussion and what really has kind of changed my personal thinking as far as how to approach this is learning more about hepcidin. Tell our listeners a little bit about hepcidin and its role in iron deficiency. If you think about it, iron is a mineral that, you know, we take in, but we don't really have a mechanism to excrete. So, you know, everyone loses a tiny little bit of iron and like skin sloughing, which, you know, just your normal loss of skin. And then women, obviously, if they're menstruating, lose iron that way. But otherwise, like kind of your body's iron is largely based on how you regulate like its absorption as well as kind of recycling within the body. And so hepcidin is a peptide hormone that is the main regulator of iron within your body. It's affected by a number of different things. So if you're anemic or hypoxic, then your hepcidin will go down. But if you have ongoing inflammation, your hepcidin goes up and that prevents iron from being absorbed optimally. And it also prevents normal recycling of iron within your body from macrophages. Basically, just kind of restricts the iron available and for making red cells. And this is interesting, especially when it comes to athletes, because there's a lot of talk about, you know, endurance athletes and especially adolescent females and stuff being like at higher risk of iron deficiency. And I think adolescent females are menstruating and have, you know, oftentimes have other things contributing like their menses or maybe even you know, more restricted diets or those sorts of things. But when it comes to like endurance athletes or just athletes in general being at higher risk for iron deficiency, there's a lot of different theories. I think the one that probably has the most evidence is actually the role of hepcidin, where when you're doing really intensive exercise, that that is like an inflammatory state. And that part of, you know, training is that like repair after that inflammatory state that occurs. And so they've shown in athletes that following significant exercise that your hepcidin goes up and it doesn't, you know, return to normal immediately. And especially if you're someone who is doing a lot of exercise every day, you probably often, if not always have elevated levels of hepcidin and really aren't absorbing iron in the same way that people who aren't doing that amount of exercise. The way that it's kind of revolutionized what I do is basically in thinking about how that works and how we do our dosing for if we're trying to treat somebody. So why don't we talk a little bit about treatment? Let's start off just first. How much do you recommend dietary changes for somebody? Because obviously, you know, we talk about what's higher in iron, liver. I don't know anybody who wants to eat liver. My mom, I know when, when I was young, she slipped me liver and onions and saying it was a steak. And that didn't go over very well because I clearly knew after I took my first bite, that was not a steak. So I don't know many people that are routinely eating liver these days as your high source of iron in your diet. And if you look at kind of the top things that really will boost it, it's stuff that people probably aren't going to eat on a regular basis. So I, I don't, I haven't really kind of approached it so much as dietary itself is through foods because I, I think it's hard, but I, I'd be curious what your take is. And then, you know, if that's not something, well, what, what do you recommend? If you're iron deficient, it's incredibly difficult to correct iron deficiency in a dietary way because you really would have to be eating like such large amounts of 
liver or, you know, steak that no one's really going to do. I think um, dietary changes can be helpful once you've kind of corrected iron deficiency to maintain iron stores. But really, if you are iron deficient, usually, you know, you're going to require specific iron supplementation, either orally or IV. Typically, we start with oral just because it's very available. It's usually inexpensive. People can do it at home. And as you were mentioning with capsaicin, what they have realized, I think probably just within like the last decade or so is people used to, I remember like even when I trained in pediatrics learning like, okay, three to six migs per kg of iron, of elemental Mm -hmm. iron per day, TID, right? Or like these like super frequent doses. And what they realized in the last decade or so is that with capsaicin, when you do intake iron, your capsaicin levels go up and then they stay up. Basically, you know, that first dose of iron is increasing your hepcidin levels. And then the second and third or however, you know, whatever additional doses you get that day really are not absorbed as optimally after that. And so now we typically do either daily or even there's some evidence for every other day oral supplementation to try to get around that hepcidin inhibition of the absorption. And that tends to be a lot better tolerated. Studies show that around 70% of people have gastrointestinal side effects from oral iron supplementation. And that might just be like, oh, I'm a little more constipated or my stomach doesn't feel super great after I take it. But it really does limit, I think, people's adherence to taking iron and can be difficult. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion on iron deficiency. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, (laughs) you know as well as I do, Time flies, but it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. I've really changed to an approach I do every other day. And, and obviously, you always get a little concerned about compliance with that. And I've tried to stress that, you know, I work with a lot of collegiate athletes too. And a lot of these runners will come in with their preconceived or already have been dosed on daily. And when I try and talk to them about, hey, maybe we should just 
back off and let's try every other day and go there and try and explain that to them. A lot of them will be like, no, you're the new guy. I work with my regular doctor for a long time. I'm not going to do that. And just trying to explain to them why that's really important. You know, I also stress the other part that we need to think about too, is that, you know, these receptors that are taking in the iron, if you're shutting those receptors off because your hepcidin level is, is making them go off so you can't absorb the iron, well, there's other nutrients that you're also blocking too, and you may create some other deficiencies as well. So we need to kind of think about that when we're, we're doing this and done it every other day with my daughter and it's worked great. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. The what my only hesitation is, is just, as you mentioned, is just that whether or not people are able to, I oftentimes will say like, okay, if you know the date, you can do like odd days of the month, but it's, it's a little more difficult just in terms of like with seven days a week. But oftentimes if they're not super iron deficient, I'll even do like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and just like skip the weekends. Cause as you said, I think even more about like, not only are you not absorbing like the iron that you're taking, like that additional time that day or whatnot, but like even the iron, like in your foods, you're not going to be absorbing as well. And we know that heme iron, which is what is found in animal products like meat is much better absorbed than non-heme iron, which is what we give in supplements. So I feel like you're not only having additional side effects and not absorbing the iron that you're taking in addition, but also like not necessarily absorbing that other iron that oftentimes is better absorbed as well. Do you have a particular preference as far as which type of supplemental oral iron that you'll use? Historically, people, you know, oftentimes will start with ferrous sulfate and that mm -hmm. does have kind of the best evidence base and seems to be absorbed a little bit better than some other types. But really, I, I find whatever the patient will kind of tolerate best, especially in younger kids. I like Novaferum because it tastes a lot better. Is a lot, especially like in kids who have to take like the liquid form, which even I see some teenagers who, for whatever reason, won't take pills. But I think, you know, whatever they will tolerate and get in them because, you know, even if it's better absorbed, if you're not taking it, it's not going to be absorbed at all. What about the role of vitamin C as boosting iron absorption? Uh, do you recommend yeah. that typically? You know, I don't so much anymore. The data on that, the most recent data on that kind of questions whether that actually is all that helpful. I think it is really difficult with iron that there are a lot of things that kind of inhibit or maybe help with absorption. So like, for example, I'd mentioned like heme and non-heme iron and the things that like inhibit one and the other are a little bit different, but like calcium is a big one that is not so good for absorption. And so making sure they're taking it away from any milk products, away from, you know, dairy products. I try to really emphasize that sort of thing. I think if you know, ideally, because there are so many things actually that can inhibit absorption, like if you can take it without food, that's kind of optimal because then you don't have to like make sure that there's not a single thing in, you know, whatever you're eating that's going to inhibit it. And that's where I feel like actually the like orange juice or vitamin C cups in handy is I think it's difficult to take on an empty stomach, but like orange juice really has nothing additional that's going to like inhibit absorption. So even if it doesn't necessarily help absorption all that much, it's at least like something that's in their stomach and it's not going to cause any problems. I'm curious your take as far as the role potentially of an iron infusion. And I asked this in terms of being around the running community for all my life, being a runner myself, and then also just taking care of lots of runners. Runners are very obsessive about what they do, uh, which is also why I don't worry so much about compliant because a lot of them are so OCD about their running that I don't worry that they're not going to do the every other day dosing as much, at least for most of them. In the running community, ferritin is very well known as something to be looking into. In fact, there'll be many runners who, or coaches uh, who coach uh, runners who will 
recommend go to your primary care doctor and ask for a ferritin level. And this is where I, you know, I hope that stuff like this information gets out to primary care physicians a little bit more broadly, because a lot of them will be like, no, I'm not going to order what your coach asked for. When in reality, it's probably a worthwhile thing to screen for in a lot of these endurance athletes. But I know there's a lot of them also who, because an iron level may be very low and they're hoping that they get a humongous boost and they get better quicker that some people will recommend doing iron infusions. I, honestly, I, I've had one or two patients that I've sent for iron infusions, and those were patients that just didn't seem to be absorbing iron very well. I don't know, obviously, how compliant those patients were with taking their medicine they said they were, but do you find any role or, or do you usually recommend at any level or for a particular person an iron infusion? You know, what I have done even within my own practice has changed considerably over the last few years. I think that there's definitely a role for some patients to get IV iron. You know, I see a lot of patients who are not as OCD about like taking, you know, their medicine. And so, you know, you end up seeing these people for years and their iron's always low and their hemoglobin's always low. And it's like, just feels like you're torturing them, right? Like they don't want to take the iron. It might make them feel bad or maybe they just you know, can't take a pill every other day. So I think those patients, there's no reason not to now that we have safe, multiple options of IV iron. I think historically, when there were fewer options, and there were a lot more side effects and worry about those side effects, it wasn't, you know, as easy to go to that. I think there's also patients where, like, depending on why they're iron deficient. So if someone is having really heavy periods and, you know, we're not able to control their periods, you're never going to fix their iron deficiency or their anemia by giving them enteral iron because you, it's like pouring water into a, you know, bucket with a hole in it, right? Sure. Like it, you just can't like even approach the amount of loss that they're having. So I think in patients like that, where they're really low, if they need to get up quickly, if they're having ongoing losses that you're not really going to be able to overcome, and then IV iron can be like a really nice way to do that. And like I said, I'm more and more tending towards this, like if it's safe and it's going to be that much easier for them to do, especially with some of the products where you can do like a one-time infusion and get you know, your iron to a normal spot versus with oral iron, even if they're taking it every other day, it can take months. And in the meantime, you know, people can feel really pretty bad. So I think I'm a little quicker now to do it than I was previously. It is a lot easier if you, if you can do the oral iron because it's all at home. Yeah, sure. Do you worry at all about any sort of form of iron toxicity in any way, shape or form as far as how that may affect things going the opposite direction instead of just iron deficiency, whether it's through an infusion, oral intake, or just someone who does have too high of iron? Yeah. I mean, I think with oral, I don't worry so much. I think with hepcidin, you know, your body does a pretty good job. And unless you have like an underlying hemochromatosis or something that like you're really not going to get into trouble. I think with IV iron, I mean, you definitely can overshoot, but there are kind of good formulas available for like putting in the person's weight and like what you want their hemoglobin to be and looking at, you know, replenishing their iron stores. I have had patients where even like if you use those very specific formulas, you can overshoot a bit, but it's not to the point where they're going to have any sort of like organ toxicity. And so it just is a matter of like kind of waiting for that to go down over time. But it is something I think that I struggle with a little bit, as you mentioned, with like the athlete thing of someone comes in and their hemoglobin is completely normal and their ferritin is 45. And they're like, well, I think I'm going to run faster if it's, you know, above 50 <laughs> or whatever. I don't know that that's the person that I feel like IV iron is necessarily going to be for. And I think a lot of times insurance won't even necessarily cover that. You know, the only time I think I've ever referred anybody on is if we're, or if we're staying in single digits and we're not bumping anything at all. 
then I think it's probably okay. You know, most, most runners I've seen, usually if we get them above 20, usually they stop being symptomatic. Obviously, you know, like you mentioned, there's still this debate between 20 and 30, as far as is 20. Okay. Is 30 where we really want to shoot them for, you know, you mentioned 50 and obviously that gives you some buffer room there too, especially if they are having menses. And and I think that's the big key that we also have to remember with some of these runners is some of them are overtraining and they're amenorrheic. And so then we, we aren't having that iron loss. And so then you got to balance that out a little bit and, and where we go from there. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's it's really interesting. I think there's also some individual thing to it as well, where like I have some patients who are very, very active playing high level sports and they seem to be very sensitive. And so like, for example, I have a young woman who I follow and she will, you know, call and say, I feel like my iron is low. And when we check, she always feels bad, like as soon as it drops below 30, but somehow like as long as it's like in kind of the 40 and up range, she like does a lot better. I'm like, well, and you know, she's just on oral iron and I'm not giving her, you know, anything crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but she just tends to feel like, you know, a lot better when her numbers are a little bit higher. And then I feel like there's other people who I see, usually not athletes who, you know, you see them and they're like, I feel fine. And you're like, your ferritin is three. Like, how yeah. do you, you know, how do you feel fine? But, you know, they're not all that active or sure. I don't know. They just feel okay. When do you stop the oral supplementation? Is there a cutoff where you say, hey, let's stop doing this? You know, my typical recommendation is I usually, if someone's in season, I'll have them stay on their supplementation if I've already determined that they're low. I mean, most of these seasons that we're talking about, especially in a high school athlete are are three months. So I I think it's probably beneficial to keep them on it. And then usually what I'll recommend after that, as long as we've found out that they're back in the normal range, I'll usually just switch them over to a women's multivitamin with iron. So they get a little bit there, but they're not, you know, getting the higher dose. And I find that to be a, a kind of an approach that I do, but do you have any particular things that you do as far as when do you recommend stopping the supplementation? Typically I will try to get their ferritin to, you know, above 30 and then I'll actually usually continue for, you know, like another three months or so just to kind of improve their stores just because I don't think every other day iron, like a 65 milligrams of elemental iron or whatnot, you're really not going to get like super high. And oftentimes I think there's a little bit of a question of like whether or not like the primary reason they were deficient to begin with, if that's resolved or not, right? Like if they're still having periods or if they're still a vegetarian or, you know, whatever it is, I'll try to get them a little bit higher. So continue for like three months after normalization, just to give them a buffer for when, you know, they stop that if they were to have like one really heavy period or something, they're not going to plummet, but it, it depends on the patient. I think continuing it while they're in season makes complete sense. And like I said, I have some patients who their iron is fine if they're off, like their ferritin is 30, but they just tend to feel better or like perform a little better if it's a little higher than that. And so they just stay on. And I think if they're tolerating it well, you know, it's like anything, it's like, it's just a, you know, a mineral like that you should be consuming in some way anyway. Um, So I don't think there's a lot of harm as long as they're not having side effects. So we finish out our podcast with something we call the Pearl of Podcast. It's your little nugget of information you really want our listeners to take home with them. So Angela, what's your Pearl of the Podcast? I think I would have to go with really looking at your reference range and not just looking for the flags because I would bet that of all the listeners, everyone's reference range is probably very different and really like there's oftentimes like sex specific reference ranges, which there should not be, right? Like there's no reason why women don't need just as much ferritin as men, like really kind of looking at the number itself and not 
whatever little reference range your lab has come up with, because um, I think that we really do a disservice to patients when we do that. So I'd like to thank Dr. Wyan for her experience in helping to clarify iron deficiency for us. As I mentioned before, she's also a great follow on Twitter. So be sure to look into that. And I will have a link to her Twitter account on our show notes. Be sure to check out all of our episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We appreciate you telling your colleagues about us. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.